We are kicking things off with a word from our sponsor. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of Watch with Jen, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code WATCHWITHJEN, all one word. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch With Jen. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Washington City Paper film critic Noah Gattel, a reporter at BBC Talk Movies and guest lecturer at Smithsonian Associates. Noah is also a freelance contributor for a number of outstanding outlets, including The Atlantic, Ringer, The Guardian, Polygon, and The Economist. Noah, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how have you been dealing with the ever-evolving pandemic? Oh, thanks for having me, Jen. Um, I'm excited to be here. And uh, pandemic-wise, you know, it's um, it's been up, up and down. Uh, but today, it's 70 degrees and sunny where I am, and I get to talk about my favorite movie. So uh, it's a good day. All right. I'm glad to hear it. Well, you're a man with a number of excellent articles and bylines to your name and some fascinating approaches to film. Are there any recent pieces you would like to give a shout out to or future articles you're working on that you'd like to recommend people be on the lookout for soon? No pressure, of course, but. (laughs) Um, Thanks for the opportunity. You know, I wrote a piece for The Ringer about uh, the best original song Oscar and why that category uh, gets it wrong so much. And like historically, all the terrible whiffs the Academy has made in that category. uh, (laughs) I'm I'm really proud of because like, you know, everyone likes to make fun of the, the Oscars and how wrong they get it. And I love to do that, too. But this category uh, really deserves special scrutiny with how how wrong they've gotten it over the years and how many just iconic songs they have missed, like not even nominated in, in a lot of cases. So if people want to search for that on the ringer.com, look for my my name, um, you'll find it. And I was I was pretty pleased with how that one came out. So that'd be a good one. Oh, that sounds great. I'll be sure to link to it uh, when this posts. So that way anyone logging on to the Patreon where I kind of first post the episode will find it there. Well, when it came time to selecting a topic for today's episode, we were perfectly in sync because we not only dig both of these films we'll be chatting about today, but have a very real, very rare obsession with the largely forgotten first movie on our list, writer-director Jake Kazdan's ingenious comedic mystery Zero Effect, starring Bill Pullman, Ben Stiller, Kim Dickens, and Ryan O'Neill, and released in 1998. 
one of the first DVDs I ever purchased in the early Warner Brothers snap case release days. It's since become a favorite of mine to the degree that I actually curated and hosted a screening and discussion of the movie in Scottsdale. I think some of the audience was like, what was this movie? But the rest of them were into it. But yes, I am one of those people who forces zero effect on others. And in a perfect world, I feel that Kazdan should have been able to make a whole slew of films in the Daryl Zero series. Mm. God-awful TV pilot. They did try to launch a few years later aside. Like Aside from that, with Alan Cumming, it just did not work very well. Pairing with Zero Effect today is 1999's contemporary Gen X classic Fight Club, directed by David Fincher and written by Jim Mulls, based on the cult smash zeitgeist novel by Chuck Palahniuk and starring Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, and Helena Bonham Carter. We'll be going deeper into each of those movies in a minute and should note that there will be spoilers ahead. So if you're listening and you haven't seen the movies, do proceed with caution. But before we do that, I would love to know what it is about these two late 90s films that you respond to the most. Obviously, you do have a really inventive daring thesis uniting both Zero Effect and Fight Club, as well as a few others that I'm sure we'll be referencing further. But if you'd like to give us an overview of that now, Noah, please go for it. Sure. I've got a lot of things to say about Zero Effect in particular, but I'll tell you the reason I put these two movies together, you know, they both came out in the late 90s, yes. uh, the same year, I think. And one year um, apart. Yeah. One year apart. Thank yeah. you. Um, and, you know, people think of that era of filmmaking and movies like Fight Club and The Matrix and even being John Malkovich to some degree and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Sixth Sense, they think of these as like either twist ending movies or movies that are all about expanding your idea of, of reality, right? Like yeah. an, an identity. And I think that's true. And, and people connect that sometimes to uh, anxiety over um, Y2K stuff sure. or... I saw Jay Hoberman wrote in one of his books that he thought it was a response to digital technology and anxiety over this idea that we can create, um, you know, digital people. And I, I lean in that direction. And I think of these movies as sort of internet avatar movies where a lot of, in a lot of these films, you're, you've got protagonists or characters who are um, very unhappy with their lives and they sort of create avatars uh, to let them live in the world in the way that they want to live in, you know, in the matrix, I think it's pretty clear that that's what the whole movie, that's the premise of the movie is Mm -hmm. in being John Malkovich, you've got this ability to inhabit somebody else in the world. And in fight club, I think it's pretty clear as well. Zero effect isn't really put in that category most of the time, but I think it totally fits because I mean, you've got this character of this guy who, is totally unable to exist in the world uh, in this one half of his life where he stays in his house all day. He's online all day. He's researching all day. Mm -hmm. He has one relationship and he treats that person terribly, terrible antisocial problems. And then he has this other part of himself who is just cool and charming and smart and able to navigate any social situation, although it seems to take a lot out of him, he can do Mm -hmm. it. 
And to me, Zero Effect fits perfectly into this category with all these other films as being an avatar movie, a, a anxiety movie about the internet age and the digital age and, and how we deal with that. Yeah, that's very fascinating. I guess I've never looked at them in quite that sphere before, but I'm very excited by it. When I was in film school, I kind of focused on um, Gen X and that whole era of filmmaking. Uh, I mean, I focused on a lot of things, but that was sort of like my thesis area and kind of, I wrote a lot of papers on some of these movies. And there's something to be said about a lot of these films coming out within a handful of years. I wrote a whole unreliable narrator paper on like usual suspects and Fight Club and Memento. There was also mm. Mulholland Drive. I mean, there was, yeah, and like you mentioned with Sixth Sense, there were a ton of these kind of back to back to back. And I know at the time people were just kind of focused on the twist endings or the Shyamalan thing, like, you know, let's see mm -hmm. what they're going to do next or how are they going to top it? And some of those like post Sixth Sense got very ridiculous very quickly, but there is something to be said. I kind of zeroed in on the existential or the malaise going on with, um, uh, approaching a new millennium or a generation kind of in flux. So yes. this is this totally. Is and it's, it's so funny. You said it's funny. You said Gen X because I rewatched zero effect to prepare for this and I hadn't yeah. seen it in a couple of years. And I had not noticed how Steve Arlo Ben Stiller's character is such a prototypical Gen X figure. In he this really movie. is. Yeah. He is this kind of angst, right? He's such an angsty young guy who, you know, he says at one point, he quit his law firm and didn't know what he was going to do. So he he's one of these guys who doesn't like his job, but doesn't know what he wants. He's a lot like, you know, Ed Norton's character in Fight Club or Craig from being John Malkovich or any of these uh, characters. And Ben Stiller, of course, is like synonymous with that kind of Gen X angst. Like he, that was his persona for a little while there in, in the mid nineties. So I hadn't really pegged it as a Gen X movie, but I, I think it really, really is. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is interesting. Well, first off, chronologically, we do have zero effect. Uh, for a film centered on, as the tagline reads, the world's most private detective, Daryl Zero, played by Bill Pullman. Writer-director Jake Kasdan sought inspiration from Arthur Conan Doyle's short Sherlock Holmes story, A Scandal in Bohemia, a fresh, funny spin on the stereotype of a perfect detective. Daryl Zero is a complete mess, agoraphobic, paranoid, narcissistic, obsessive, antisocial. He's a recreational amphetamine user when he's off the clock, but when he's working, he is one of the most intuitive people you will ever meet. Having recruited Ben Stiller's lawyer, Steve Arlo, to be his assistant, go between representative and all around Guy Friday, since he doesn't like to deal with clients or really many people directly. In the movie, Daryl Zero is hired by Ryan O'Neill to find his missing keys because he's being blackmailed flying to Portland to engage in what he calls the two obs of observation and objectivity. He follows Ryan O'Neill in the field and comes across a beautiful paramedic named Gloria Sullivan. 
played by Kim Dickens, who's also involved in the situation. As sharp as it is witty and twisty while also being surprisingly moving, although it didn't do well at the box office in the year following Titanic, which was still dominating theaters just two months after its release when this movie came out, I absolutely love Zero Effect. So what are your thoughts on the movie? We've talked a little bit about it so far, but also yeah. its themes, casts, and the wonderkind 24-year-old filmmaker, Jake Castan. All right, I'm going to say a lot of things right now, and and you because I've been bursting to talk about this movie for like 20 years. I'm excited. Um, Go for it. All right, good. <laughs> uh, you pick out what you think is interesting. But um, so when I like became a film critic, which was only less than 10 years ago, okay. um, I didn't know there was anybody else who liked this movie. I didn't talk to a lot of other film people. I kind of thought this was just like my discovery. And then being on film Twitter and, you know, obviously people just post about what they like. And I noticed people would talk about this movie occasionally here or there, maybe once every eight, nine months, somebody would tweet something about zero effect. And I started to realize that this is, this is a movie that people have like a very lonely connection to. Like it, maybe it's a movie you first saw by yourself at 11 o'clock at night on a Tuesday <laughs> and, you know, and, and it's a movie about lonely people. So I think it makes some sense that it's not like a movie you get together with your friends to watch. It's, it's a movie you watch by yourself and you really connect to and you think you're the only one who loves it. But and the Very truth true. is there are, there's a lot of people who love it. And I think in addition to being a movie we each may have a personal connection to, it is a really, um, it's a really fun, exciting movie that has so many different elements you kind of can you can consider it one of many different kinds of movie it's a mystery it's it's a private eye movie obviously it's also a rom-com it's also a buddy movie yeah it's it's a great it's a great portland movie it's one of the first uh pieces of pop culture i've seen that really utilized what portland oregon has to offer you know i, I heard on the commentary track jake kasdan talking about how they cast all the bit parts with like local people. And they, they found these people with these great weird faces and mm -hmm. you see them all over the movie. So way before Portlandia, like zero effect figured out that Portland had something special. Um, it's, as we said, it's a Gen X movie. It's also a movie about bad dads written Very, and directed by a guy yes. with a pretty famous dad, which I think is really fascinating. I do too. I, Every time I watch it, I think, boy, there's a story there. Absolutely. Totally. And, you know, I've read all the interviews with Jake Kasdan and people do ask, not like, is this about your dad in some way? But they ask, you know, did your dad read it? Did he help at all? This sort of thing. So it's very clear that being Larry Kasdan's son is like, it's a huge part of his life. It's, I'm sure, oh, a, burden, yeah. a burden and a gift. And it's hard to not kind of be tickled by that when you watch this movie about, you know, you've got two characters in it whose father killed their mother. Mm -hmm. And you've also got this strange father-son kind of relationship between Arlo and Zero himself. And I kind of feel when I'm watching it that the Arlo character is Kasdan's avatar. And it's in some weird way, it's about him trying to kind of break free. Break away. Yeah. 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 From, from the, the legend of his father. Yeah, very true. And it's interesting, too, because um, Ryan O'Neill is in it. And you want to talk about complicated fathers? Go ahead. And yeah, there's <laughs> Ryan O'Neill for you. Anyone who doesn't know, do a little Wikipedia and read about Ryan's uh, 
you know, wonderful, beautiful daughter Tatum, who was in Paper Moon with him, and his son as well. I mean, there's a lot of heartbreak in the O'Neill family, and a lot of it falls right at uh, Ryan O'Neill's feet. So, when yeah, and it's that, one of it, yeah, it's one of his best performances it in like really years that, that Ryan yeah. O'Neill gave, and you wonder was this an opportunity to channel some of that that turmoil? yeah, some of that anguish or guilt maybe or or for a brief moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, we don't know, obviously it's his personal life, of course, but it is interesting on a meta level, especially with Jake Kazdan and his, his brother, Jonathan is also a filmmaker. So you do kind of wonder, I mean, this is one just unique, brilliant screenplay that he wrote very young. And of course, having those connections helped get it made. I, chose this movie last summer in my pandemic movie club. Like it was one of the first ones. I'm like, oh, let's do Zero Effect. And a few people I think had seen it. I don't know if they all had, but I was like, don't you guys just love the script? And two of them were like, yeah, Jen, but of course he got this made. He's Lawrence Kasdan's son. And it's like, <laughs> obviously, yes. I mean, uh, I read an interview where he talked about meeting Bill Pullman when he was a kid on the set of Accidental Tourist, which was his father's movie, and I love it very much. And of course, he had those advantages. But just when you get right down to it, this script is dynamite. And I don't want to take anything away from uh, Kazdan for it. I think it's incredible. He was 21 years old when he wrote it and, and 22 years old when yeah. he shot. Totally insane. I mean, yes, he had opportunities nobody yes. else had. But this takes an immense amount of talent to put something like this together. It really yeah. does. And I love how um, when he's on the clock, Daryl Zero, he spouts out all of this information that you think is legit. Like when he's in a hotel room and he's going on about, well, in 1972 or 73, you know, a bed couldn't be this close to the radiator and this and that. And all of that was just BS, but it sounds so real, like all the different information flying out of his mouth. And of course you have Bill Pullman bringing it to life, but yeah. yeah and he gets, a, a he gets such a yes. big, he get he, Bill Pullman handles that scene so well because yes. <laughs> he gets, he gets a laugh on the and a lava lamp line. Yeah. And, uh, but he conveys so much information and he makes you believe that he has all that information just at his fingertips and yeah, I, I was I was amazed too because you figure somebody who puts that dialogue in a movie that that comes from research. Yes, but yeah. it it didn't. He just totally made it up, and that's that's a gift. It really is. When was the first time you saw Zero Effect? I honestly don't remember, but I okay. want to say it, I want to say it was probably in my early to mid twenties. Okay. So I was eight. I was eighteen when this movie came out. I did not see it at the time. I probably didn't even hear much about it. I was surprised to read that this movie played at Cannes. Yes. Uh, not in competition. Regard. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. Because I didn't remember it having any kind of reputation like that at the time. Um, I thought of it as just like a bomb that I discovered on, on DVD one day. Um, I don't know. I don't know what drew me to it originally. Like I wasn't I wasn't a huge Ben Stiller fan. I wasn't a huge Bill Pullman fan. I don't know if there were huge Bill Pullman fans back then. <laughs> it was probably the trailer and the cover art of the DVD, which I still think is really cool. It's excellent. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I connected to it immediately. And I have to say, you know, I mentioned all of the different movies it is in one. What impresses me the most about it still 
And when you talk about him doing it at this such a young age, but also doing this at any age, is the way he balances all that stuff and the way the film unfolds uh, like like a flower, really. You know, when it starts, it's this wacky, goofy, private eye movie. And I always tell people when I recommend this movie, if the wacky, goofy stuff is not your thing, like stick with it because it's not yep. going to stay in that place. Uh, yes. But when it starts, we really only see Daryl Zero from Arlo's perspective. And he's like such a cartoon character at the mm -hmm. beginning. And it unfolds to this place where by the end, he is such a three-dimensional, fully formed person with a past and a present who is somehow both neurotic and really cool at the same time. And it becomes so, you know, it's, it's a genre piece that becomes a character study, really. And it yes. accomplishes that without losing the fun genre stuff and the mystery box element where that stuff lands really hard and the character study stuff lands just as hard. And when I watch it today, I'm still amazed that Kasdan kind of held on to all of that stuff at the same time. I know. And I've heard him talk about that he wishes he would have gotten into the meat of the film or the plot a little quicker. And you can see that a little bit with some audiences at first would be like, what am I watching when Bill Pullman is on the bed singing that hilarious song let's run off and get married which is just <laughs> brilliant but I personally love it I actually saw this film immediately when it came out on uh, video or DVD I remember Roger Ebert raving about it um, I think mm -hmm. the box even has like a Siskel and Ebert you know two thumbs up yeah. up. and I remember yep. reading some like I don't think Janet Maslin was a super glowing review, but she liked the dynamic between Pullman and Stiller. This is if memory serves, of course. But I remember hearing about it and just being very excited. What was interesting at the time is we talk about Gen X. Somebody who really epitomized Gen X was Ben Stiller. He was in um, Reality Bites. He made Reality Bites. And another, he was always drawn to very unique voices, especially um, screenwriters, uh, unique scripts. I remember hearing about uh, the first time he saw Bottle Rocket and he was like laughing in the theater alone and thinking, boy, somebody out there gets my sense of humor, which is the exact same <laughs> experience that I had when I first saw Bottle Rocket, which I think came out in like 97 or 98 as well. Um, so we had some of these and you want to give credit to Ben Stiller for seeking out these original voices and then working with them. He worked with Wes Anderson um, a few years later, Royal Tannenbaums. He latched right onto this one. So, yeah, I love that about him. Willing to I, I, I put chance. this in the um, I put this sort of in the same little trio of films with Permanent Midnight as well. And, yes. um, oh, the talk about a brilliant know, one. Yeah. Totally. And a great writer, you know, with, yes. with, with Jerry Stahl. And uh, I think this was like his, he was doing really interesting kind of seventies kind of stuff in this era of his career. Character. Acting, and he was yeah. also character acting. This was also his, what I call his cool Jew phase where he was, um, he was like wearing sunglasses a lot. And I think he, <laughs> he saw himself as he was very like into his coolness, I think at this time, which is totally normal for somebody who was such a big star at, at that age. Um, but he was, what that meant was that he wasn't doing as many like straight comedic roles. He was doing oh. things that were a little 
um, more interesting, a little more complex. And, you know, I think that all changed when he did meet the parents and it's like, okay, now I'm a comedy star again, but this was such an interesting phase of his career. And I do remember even at the time when I saw this, I guess I, cause I saw it a little later, I was surprised that there was a movie in this era in which he was a supporting character in which he wasn't the lead. It seemed like it was um, unusual for somebody whose star was so ascendant like Stiller mm-hmm. to take to take a role like this in a really small movie with a first time director playing second fiddle to Bill Pullman, who wasn't a star at all, really. It's interesting you bring up the the quote unquote cool Jew phase because this was a couple of years before Keeping the Faith, which finds Stiller starring with the star of our next film, Fight Club, uh, Edward <laughs> Norton. And there's a scene in the movie where um, Stiller is playing a rabbi and Norton is playing a priest where they walk down the street with their sunglasses on to Rob Thomas oh, yeah. and Santana. And it is very cool and very, very funny. It was like, I think they called it the God Squad scene of the movie. But yeah, and that was an original script as well from Stuart Blumberg, right. kind of taking an old uh, bar joke about a priest and a rabbi and making it a love triangle. But yeah, so I, I enjoyed this side of Stiller as well. And Bill I like Pullman I like that movie so a lot. Yeah, I definitely yeah. want to talk about Bill Pullman, but I, I like Keeping the Faith a lot. It, you know, yeah. it never totally works for me. Like I always watch it thinking it's going to be a little better than it is, but that's <laughs> a, it's a great example of him merging like Cool Jew with Comedy Star. Like he yeah. found that a sweet spot for it in that movie and I don't think he ever quite found that again oh no that's interesting yes very true and then his dynamic with Bill Pullman in this uh back to zero effect is just so unique as well because they're very different in their approaches to acting I think and um Stiller is I mean it's interesting uh Pullman gets a lot of the big speeches, but you really think of Stiller as a highly verbal actor who's very, you know, deft with his comedy and his ability to spout off like paragraphs of information. And he gets a little of that here, but it's mostly Pullman. So it's almost like we see Pullman doing a little Stillery kind of thing in this. Well, Pullman does like everything in this movie, right? Because he, he definitely spouts information and he has monologues um, where he's has very little, um, you know, self-awareness. But then he also, he has these incredible moments of self-consciousness where he Heartbreak. feels yeah. totally, and he's barely able to communicate. I mean, it, it almost reminded me of like um, Timothy Spall in the, the Turner movie where he's like communicating in grunts almost like there oh, are these long yeah. pauses and groans in Daryl Zero's uh in his, in his speech that, you know, it's so painful to feel this guy who is so uncomfortable with himself that he can't, he can barely get a sentence out. And then, then, and then in other scenes, he's raging and destroying furniture around the room, like a Mm -hmm. rock star. So it's just an incredibly varied performance. And, you know, I don't know if we ever, you know, the one performance of Pullman's, it reminds me of a little bit. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, uh, the last seduction, Oh yeah. Great film. Right. So he, he plays, he has that comedy, that dark comedy edge in that movie uh, that is a little similar to zero effect, but Mm -hmm. it's a supporting role. And I don't think it's not really similar in terms of what it achieves, uh, you know, as an acting performance, but this film for Pullman came at such a peak of his career, you know, right after while you were sleeping and independence day, and he was on the rise as well. 
And, you know, this movie was not a hit. I don't know that he had a lot of starring roles after this, but I'm so grateful that we got this because it really shows the full scope of, of what he was capable of as an actor. Very true. He was taking some big, big swings here. I think he had a little more uh, ability to do that, especially after while you were sleeping and independence day. I mean, this was one year after lost highway, which mm. is another role like glass seduction. You do not picture Bill Pullman <laughs> in these roles, but Oh my goodness. It is so good. Yeah. I think, and, you know, I, I could see Lynch being attracted to him for the same reason he liked Kyle McLaughlin and blue velvet. You know, he's like, he has an all American kind of yes, quality to, to him. Yeah, and, and Pullman is so comfortable playing against that. He seems to seek it out, and that's what makes him so interesting. Very true. Yes. And Kim Dickens, my goodness, I, I've always loved her. She did some really stellar work. It, she's one of those actresses where I'm like, why isn't she more well-known? Why doesn't she have the huge fans that like other actresses have today? Uh, this film and... Then a few years later in the Allison Anders movie, Things Behind the Sun, I was just blown away by her and wish she had been able to um, break out or, yes, uh, have more people realize what she can do. I never saw that Anders movie. Uh, it's worth seeking out. It is. It is a hard film to watch because mm -hmm. it comes from her own life, Anders, and uh, the, the rape she experienced when she was young. But it is stellar. Yeah. Well, I think Dickens is incredible in this movie. I don't think I'd ever seen her before. And I just, you know, immediately huge crush on her mm -hmm. in this film. Um, she is so, uh, she's so quiet in this movie. And I found myself when she and Daryl Zero are talking, their conversations are so quiet. You find yourself kind of leaning, leaning in. in. Yes. yes. To like to be part of that intimacy and, and and really just to even hear what they're saying. And I thought that was a fascinating choice uh, to play this character that way, because, you know, on a certain level, she's very affable and easygoing and likable. But the, the quiet intensity was just such a great choice. And it reveals a lot about her character without revealing too much about her character, if you know what I mean. Yeah, a recurring theme in the movie seems to be what people are like in public versus their private persona, which goes to what you were talking about with the internet avatar idea. And you really see that. I had read that one of the scenes that was confusing the hell out of like test audiences when they were testing this movie, which just that whole process kind of gives me a full body cringe. But the, the um, <laughs> scene that was like, eluding people or confusing them was the one in the diner uh, near the end when um, Bill Pullman and Kim Dickens are there and he's sharing just this horrific story about his own tragedy growing up with his parents in Minnesota. And uh, it confused people because they were like, is he just saying that to see what she would do? Is this real? Is this... I guess it was leading to a whole lot of different interpretations and confusing people, which, uh, you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, no offense to those people, but they sound like idiots. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to me, that move, that scene it, is the whole movie. Um, it's harrowing. Yeah. It's, you know, because when, again, when I was watching it the other night, I noticed how he lets down his guard with her immediately. Like the first time he meets her, he, yeah. he reveals 
because he says, oh, you smell like iodine or you, or he says, are you a paramedic? And that's, yeah. he's, he's like letting down his guard there more than he probably has ever let down his guard in his whole life. The next time he sees her, he tells her, this is how I knew you were a paramedic, which mm-hmm. if she were paying attention, that would be a red flag as well. Then when she has dinner with him at her house, he reveals that he grew up in Minnesota and you can tell he's mad at himself that he, he let that go. It. Yeah. And then in the diner scene, he reveals the whole thing. And it's an incredible moment of connection because she knows that her father killed her mother as yes. well. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how having watched the whole movie, you could get to that moment and think he was making it up. I mean, I it's one of the most, <laughs> intimate, it's one of the most intimate scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, it really is. Oh, it's it's heartbreaking and it explains so much. And like what you were pointing out, because he does play with people. I love at the beginning, you see him with, um, it's just, it takes like a part of his hair. He goes to the left, he's one guy, Nick Carmine. And the right, he's somebody else. And it, it's just, you know, that is kind of bad shit and it's kind of funny. But yeah. as he's tricking people or getting to know them and scoping out information, he doesn't really just volunteer that he is that intuitive. She's the only person that draws it out in him. Like he didn't have to just voluntarily say, oh, are you, you must be a paramedic or something like that. Like there was something about her that sparked his interest right away. Yes. I, I love that. Yeah. Sparked his interest and made him let down his guard. And yeah. it's a fascinating thing because I just noticed it again on this viewing, but in their final conversation on the phone, he says, when did you know about me? And she says a couple things. And then it cuts to him listening to the conversation. It cuts from her to him. And she says, and the receipt. And he goes, oh, that's right. I didn't take the receipt. But I think there was more in there that they cut out because it feels like a little abrupt cut. And I wonder if there was her saying, like, I knew from the beginning. I knew from when yeah. you said iodine or I knew from when you, you know, you said Minnesota or something like that. Because watching it again, it, it really feels like she is on to him much earlier than that because he has let down his guard around her. Yeah, or that whole was it chromium <laughs> or corrodium? Algorium. Algor- <laughs> yes, that whole thing. Oh my gosh, his deductions and uh, make it. any sense? I know. No. I love it too. <laughs> yes, and I I get a kick out of every time it cuts to like Stiller and like how did you never pay taxes before? And oh my gosh, it's funny. The WW2 bit, yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's the Second World War, yeah. <laughs> that's like so the big good. trailer laugh line, but it gets me every single time. It really does. And I love, like, you know, there are those comedic moments, but there's also some real moments of suspense. Like when we're following, especially for the first one, when we're following O'Neill as he goes to make that drop off mm-hmm. of the, the money for the blackmailer. And just how clever and brilliant uh, Zero is with the voiceover of people know they're being followed when you turn around and see someone following you. They don't know if you get there first. And I just love that so So much. So good. Yes. You know, every Private Eye movie has to have some stuff like that. Yeah. You know, um, I watched The Kid Detective the other day. I want to see that. I have not yet. It's good. It's not Zero Effect, in my opinion. But it's what worth is? seeing. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, when, it has some stuff like that in it. Like he reveals some tricks of the trade. And mm-hmm. I think every private eye movie has to have that. But these really work. And those scenes uh, of him making the drop are so 
suspenseful. And a lot of that has to do with the score by the Grey Boy All-Stars, which I, I love. love. And really is important in those scenes because it is suspenseful and it's goofy at the same time. And that's a hard thing to pull off. It is. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is in some cases, it's a very assured and it feels like a super mature movie from somebody much older. But then there are these little things that you imagine somebody only in their 20s would think of, like Pullman on the bed, a shot of him just quickly getting up and like reversing his jacket and then (laughs) he's he's changed into something it's kind of like a kid's idea of you know I'm going to shake this person and I I love that about it because then of course it goes with some super sophisticated stuff that he does later on but I do love those moments also when he goes back and does the research there's just this great gag if you're uh, a fan of this movie where he makes Steve Arlo go from LA to Portland, LA to Portland. And then he Mm. goes back for research. But when he zeroes in on this horrible poem that Ryan O'Neill's character wrote in uh, college and the messed up uh, rhyme scheme with uh, towards and birds and just, he punches it and how it bothers them. And you kind of imagine that as somebody who's just out of college. Cause we all had those people in our like creative writing class or on literary magazines or that kind of thing. And you always have one of those guys oh, yeah. kind of see his age there. So it's I love true. That. Um, a couple things about that. First of all, I totally agree that that is like a college age thing to do. I also think that stuff with the poem is so important as a character yes. beat because it reveals that Zero is a romantic at heart. Yeah. I mean, when he's criticizing the poem, I love that line. He said, how do you write a poem about a girl named Clarissa, Clarissa and not include the name? If there was ever a name that, that begged, begged to be put yes. in a poem, <laughs> it's, it's Clarissa. Clarissa. Um, and that tells you that he has, you know, he's a romantic and in, somewhere inside there. Um, and then, you know, I was watching it and there were a couple scenes in which I did feel like maybe it was a little over-directed and there were some things that a more Mm -hmm. mature director would not have done. And it's interesting because there was one shot in particular that made me feel like this is a mistake. And it's during the uh, scene at the steakhouse between Arlo and uh, Stark, where Stark is revealing uh, the full story, you know, that there was this girl and he raped her and this is what I did. And it's a shot that's, it's a ground level shot that kind of meanders up to oh, them. Yes. And yes. I read, I thought this shot is bad. It's weird. It doesn't fit with the rest of the scene. He's, he doesn't, he's not trusting his actors. It's too cute. And I will hold him responsible because he left it in the movie. But I read that he said his father directed that shot, that his father yep. was on set and he let his, his father direct one shot. And that's the one he directed. And I almost wonder if he did it subconsciously to make his father like look bad or something, because to me, it's actually, it's actually the worst shot in the movie. It's the only one that doesn't fit. It doesn't. You keep thinking when we're following the ground level shot, like, are we going to see Kim Dickens? Like there's some other side to that conversation or somebody eavesdropping or following him that it, it just kind of goes nowhere. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strange, it's strange tonal shift and it feels like it's drawing attention to itself. And I didn't understand it, but that's part. Yeah. But that's part of the fascinating kind of unknowability involved in this movie. So I guess in the end it, it fits in its own way. 
It does. Yeah. Plus it's a first movie thing. I remember um, listening to uh, Steven Soderbergh talk about sex lies and videotape. And he's like, I'm using a dolly shot for no reason. Like, you know, <laughs> just like, why are we zooming in on a hallway like that? Like there's no point to it or stuff like that. And um, so he was kind of coming down on himself. Like you play a little bit cause you don't know what you're doing. And um, I think sometimes they're being hard on themselves. In this case, it does feel like something is missing, kind of like what you were pointing out in that conversation where you wonder, was there something that was left mm-hmm. on the cutting room floor? So I don't know. It'd be interesting to know, was there someone else in that steakhouse? Who knows? The, it, it, yeah, it totally could be. Um, and I think... You know, what you said about Soderbergh definitely rings true. You, you do feel like Kasdan is really spreading his wings a little here. Like in the very first sequence, the back and forth between Stark's office and the bar, every time he cuts back and forth, he has a completely different setup, a completely different kind yeah. of shot. Uh-huh. And you can tell he's just having fun. He's saying like, I, yeah. can, I can have fun here. I can do whatever I want. And I'm, I'm going to. He has that really cool wraparound shot around Arlo in the office and I don't know. I, I really enjoyed it. Those are those scenes are kind of static. So yeah. I have no issue with him make, making it visually uh, stimulating. Yeah, I remember a film class I took contemporary cinema uh, with one of my friends. Um, her He was my professor at the time, Daryl Kopp. He actually taught one and he was showing um, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels at the beginning. And mm. he was just, uh, you know, Guy Ritchie playing around. He's like, this is your kid in a candy store thing you do when you're starting <laughs> out in filmmaking. And he said, it's just, and he just had this whole sequence. And he said, there's no need for this, but it's just so fun to watch. And you can tell they're having the best time. And yeah, you can see that in the beginning of this one as well. Kind of like people's first movies. That's what they do. Absolutely. And and the joy of the filmmaking comes through. I mean, yes. I don't, I don't need it to just be what's necessary. I, I, the director's having fun. Sometimes that helps the audience have fun too. Very true. Well, there are any other last words you want to say when it comes to zero effect before we go to fight club? Yeah. I want to say one thing, which is that uh, one of my gigs, as you mentioned earlier, is as a reporter for the BBC and, you know, I'm a, I'm a film critic by nature. That's what I enjoy doing, but sometimes I have to do other things. And when I went to the Toronto Film Festival a few years ago, I had to do a red carpet. And I it was for the movie Battle of the Sexes. I don't, do you remember that movie? Yeah, With Emma Stone and Steve Carell. Uh-huh. And uh, I was, because it was BBC, I was second in the line, which is an mm-hmm. important spot. You know, you get all the celebrities at the beginning. Sometimes they cut out halfway through. That wouldn't happen with me. So I was way out of my element. I was asking these really like, you know, in-depth questions and they were expecting like, you know, what are you wearing type of questions. (laughs) So I've got Emma Stone and Steve Carell and Elizabeth Shue uh, and I'm, 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 my head is spinning. And then Bill Pullman walks up. Oh my God. And uh, I, you know, he's in the movie. He has, he's kind of the heavy in the movie as a small role, but he's in it. And I was supposed to ask him about this movie and this role, obviously, but all that could, could come out of my mouth was, I have to tell you, Zero Effect is my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> and his eyes totally lit up. And oh, he said, that. the great Jake Kasdan. Oh. And I was like, yeah. And I started talking to him. Hey, Jake Kasdan just made Jumanji. You've got that. He's got that juice now. You can make the Zero Effect sequel. And we talked about it for like two minutes because that's all you get with them. But it was interesting to me that he went 
straight to Kasdan because hey, oh. well, hey, I don't think people talk to him about this movie much, but also I did see in the research that he really treasured the relationship he had with Kasdan. He even compared it to reading about Scorsese and De Niro and how they would hang out for so long before making the movie. And he said he did that with Kasdan before making this movie. And it seemed like he had never had that kind of relationship with the director before. Maybe he hasn't since, but it was really beautiful to see uh, the, the joy in his eyes when I mentioned this movie to him. Oh, I'll treasure that. That is so good. And it was kind of cool, too, because um, one of the secrets of interviewing these people, especially when they have to promote something, is they're so tired of talking <laughs> about the movie by that point. So yeah. it is kind of cool when you can get them on another topic. And I love that you managed to um, meet up with Bill Pullman and brighten his day <laughs> like that. That is so cool. It was special. Not my most professional moment, but a good personal moment. Oh, absolutely. Well, next we have the final and easily the most famous film of the day, the wildly misunderstood iconic cult hit about dudes and existential flux, Fight Club. Edward Norton stars as our unnamed narrator and automobile recall specialist with chronic insomnia and perpetual malaise who's unfulfilled in his personal and professional life. Initially finding an emotional release by going from one tragic support group to the next, everything from testicular cancer to incest, our narrator soon loses the high he'd experienced from pretending to suffer when he notices a fellow tourist, Helena Bonham Carter, at multiple meetings looking for the same catharsis. Meeting Brad Pitt's cocky, well-dressed, aggressively macho, singular soap maker, Tyler Durden on a work trip, Norton's narrator falls into an easy rapport with the man, moving into his falling down, squatters ready house on Paper Street and starting an unlikely fight club with him where the two get the same emotional release, just beating the shit out of one another. Obviously, the film's twist, which reveals that Norton and Pitt's characters are one in the same, is one of the most shocking, unreliable narrator reveals of the of 90s cinema. But this nihilistic, thrillingly original endeavor, again directed by David Fincher and based on Chuck Palahniuk's novel, tapped right into the zeitgeist for a generation as we approached a new millennium. It is a strong, visceral, shocking, funny, profane, yet impossibly addictive work that I can't wait to discuss. So what is your take, Noah, on Fight Club? Well, you know, I remember when I saw Fight Club in the theater, mm -hmm. I went with a couple of friends, one of whom was a really smart guy who I, I really respected his opinions on stuff. And he came out of the movie and me and my friend were just raving about how good it was. And then my other friend, this really smart guy said, well, it was definitely the most one of the most entertaining movies I've ever seen. And when I look back on it, I think that's a really astute comment because this is one of those movies that I struggle with because it's so entertaining, mm -hmm. because it deals with very complicated themes, very troubling behavior. And it... I, I end up missing a lot of what is so troubling about it every time I watch it because Brad Pitt is so charming, because the, um, the, the directing is so slick, because it's so colorful. And I, this is, I mean, it's the oldest debate in the world about depiction versus endorsement. Yes. And 
And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always on the side of depiction does not equal endorsement. No, this is a movie that gives me pause over that. And part of it is because it has inspired so much terrible behavior. Um, the film has, is, is the most beloved movie of people on, you know, 8chan and 4chan and all these internet uh, boards where people act out their white male aggression. And Tyler Durden is a hero to these people. And it's not the movie's fault and it's not Fincher's fault and it's not Palahniuk's fault. But when I watch the movie, I have to be honest, like I, I see where that comes from. I see why people miss the anti-fascism message and, yeah. and they just get stuck on how freaking cool Brad Pitt is in this movie. You know, it's the same thing with A Clockwork Orange, I, I think. Um, mm. I would put these movies together in that um category of you know in the wrong hands or to the wrong people they're going to get the wrong message i mean that's true about every single movie you can definitely see it with this um it is one that of course i find just deeply fascinating it is for all of its just like gangs of new york i guess is like the proud boys favorite movie um which is kind of Baffling. Is that right? Yes, it was mm. Gangs of New York. Um, they even do something that has to do with uh, the Daniel Day-Lewis character. I mean, it's insane, but mm. um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. But it's like, learn a little about subtext, you guys. Uh, yeah. When I saw this movie, I did see it solo. I went, I think, twice. And then when I was talking later to a gay friend, uh, about it they're like his reaction is oh I love that film it is the gayest film of all <laughs> and it really is I mean it's a different movie to everybody watching but at its heart it is a love story I mean mm -hmm. they've talked about how this is basically a movie that was inspired by you know the graduate and films of that whole era and you can see that but it's a love story too. It's, it's interesting. So it's going to inspire all kinds of reactions. And yeah, it is troubling that now those guys have kind of ruined the film, I guess, but yeah. I still really enjoy it. I appreciate what the film is trying to say about, you know, and it is very eerie when you watch this and you see that it was 1999 and there's that big sequence with um, it's one of the most famous in the movie where Brad Pitt is going, you know, you're not your khakis and we're a generation of, you know, we have no great wars. We have no that kind of thing. And this was the same year because 99 is technically I'd already started college, but that's technically the year I would have graduated high school. And that was the year of Columbine. And then two years later with 9-11 and we were in two more wars. So. It is an interesting uh, end of the millennium film. It's kind of foreshadowing the bad to come, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. And uh, just on the, the gayness of it, I always think about that line when he says, we were, uh, we were a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering yeah. if another woman, woman is really is our answer. Yes. Oh, there's so I mean, much. It's all right there. You know, it is all right there. Of course, I didn't notice it when I was 19, but it's hard, hard to miss now. Yeah. Um, and um, but when you talk about it, that moment in time, like I also I do think about it as such a classic Gen X movie. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, this, this character of uh, uh, the narrator is, you know, as we talked about, not different from Steve Arlo or from being John Malkovich character working in that tiny office or Chandler Bing on Friends or any of these guys who just kind of have these nondescript jobs and thought they were promised something better. They grew yep. up, you know, in the 80s the, in this period of, of ego and glam and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, they are so dissatisfied with their lives. They don't want their lives, but they don't know what they do want. And right. And that's the kind of appeal of Tyler Durden and appeal of Fight Club, which is like, here's something here's something you can believe in. We don't have a great war, but we have we have this. And I, I think it resonates. And I, I think it still resonates today. Um, when I watch the movie, I don't want Fight Club, but I still want to feel a part of something. And I still mm-hmm. want to feel a part of a movement. And I still hate corporate America and Starbucks and, and all that bullshit. And, you know, I think in that way, it still resonates to a fascinating and a dangerous degree. Yeah. What's interesting about Fight Club as well is only a female producer had the guts to green light it. Mm. Uh, a bunch of different studios passed, but it was Laura Ziskin, Fox 2000, that said yes and oh. optioned the book and uh, assigned it to Jim Oles. And Fincher, I guess, had tried to get the rights on his own and was a little apprehensive because he'd had a bad experience with Fox on Alien 3. But right. like, luckily, yeah, joined in. What you were talking about too with depiction and it kind of reminds me of, um, I remember when this came out, it was super controversial and people were talking about what is it going to inspire? And it reminded me of the backlash of hearing about like, do the right thing, which came out mm-hmm. in 89. So a decade earlier, we had another movie like, oh my God, this movie is gonna cause riots or yeah. what is this going to do? And you know, you do see the pointlessness, the existential angst and the fear of men feeling like, what does it all mean? That kind of thing. But it's also just such a great allegorical indictment of uh, capitalism and consumerist culture. It also reminds me of, I mean, you have to look at it as an allegory, which it is, uh, kind of like Peter Greenaway's, you know, the thief, the cook, his wife, her lover, sort of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, about, um, you know, the monarchy and that society as well. Yeah, there's a lot to this button. Yeah, there, there really is. The do the right thing comp is interesting. And I don't remember when Fight Club came out, was, was there a lot of hand-wringing about it at the time or did that come later? You know, I just remember seeing a lot of articles where people talked about this. I think once it hit home video is when people really started to wonder, oh my gosh, is this going to cause, you know, fight clubs and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it didn't, did it? I mean, I don't remember fight clubs actually happening. No, I heard of some, like I have a few cousins who are Marines and they talked about like they, they did stuff like that. And I remember at a holiday function, then breaking down this movie with one of my uncles who didn't had, had a little more film literacy and my cousin kind of looking at us like, Oh, that's really what it's about. Like, (laughs) and like, you know, yeah. I mean, what's interesting is if there was Henry at the time, I don't think anyone could have predicted the way yeah. The film's pernicious impact would play out, which is no. 
you know, very few of the people who found agency in this movie had Mm -hmm. the uh, courage to go be Tyler Durden, you know, to go blow stuff up, to go like start (laughs) fights. But they did, they did not predict the way that the internet would play out and that people Mm -hmm. would have the ability or think they have the ability at least to be true chaos makers online. And that's what ended up happening. Um, And and it, it speaks to the core of the movie, the core idea that we're talking about today, which is that Tyler Durden is a person we create for ourselves to be who we can't be in real life. And the internet just created this entire world where people could try to do that, try to be Tyler Durden online to some, some terrible effect. Yeah. And also, I mean, thinking about the place in history that this movie uh, was released, it was, you know, before 9-11 and the same year as Columbine, which goes in with the Matrix, which also has the internet avatar thing you were mentioning earlier. It's also before the recession. I remember when I reviewed the film, I wrote about it in film school, and then I reviewed it uh, years later on its 10th anniversary, and boy, did it hit differently, you know, coming right at the recession, too, like, why didn't we do something, or all the different, um, you know, uh, I'd look at the catalogs and wonder what kind of dining set defines me as a person, just our consumerist, uh, the way that we ingest corporate greed and hope that it makes us interesting or unique or defines us as a person is very sad. And when I was looking at it and looking over things I had written about it over the years, I came across this, I believe this is from Jim Alls. I don't think this is from Polinick. And he was articulating what he was trying to do. He said that Polinick's book was a seminal statement of the times Uh, about this particular generation, much in the same way that the 60s were captured in the better films of that decade. Mm -hmm. He said the first way in which a new generation takes control of society is through the culture, the arts, films, books, and music, through all entertainment. People who feel safe and secure in the existing society are frightened by ideas that threaten their power. People who hold the power in society want nice, complacent forms of entertainment, films that comfort people and support the status quo. And how this was um, kind of throwing a rock at that, essentially. Wow. Yeah, that seems spot on to me. And you're right, and and he's right, that this film was ahead of its time uh, on the the kind of anti-corporate and also white male rage tip. Mm -hmm. you know, this was 1999, and what you see in this movie is some of the same energy that fueled both yeah. Donald Trump's rise and also, to some degree, Bernie Sanders' rise. Very um, true. Yeah. And that's, you know, and Fincher was a young guy-ish when he made this movie, and now he's a, an older guy with, with gray hair, and he's like an old <laughs> statesman. So I think, yeah, he, he, he took... They, they did leave their mark on the culture back then. And now we're seeing the kind of um, political mark on the culture that's being left by some of the same ideas. Yes, absolutely. What do you think of the style of the filmmaking, uh, the approach? Do you have any insights there? Anything jump out at you? I mean, it's just so 
purely entertaining. To it me. really is. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's so much fun to watch. It moves quickly. These people are so watchable all the time. I mean, I think the soundtrack is incredible. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, very. There, there's pleasure, pleasure principle going on here, and you know, that's again, that's the challenging thing about it. this movie is so much fun. Should it be this much fun? I don't know. You know, if if the part wasn't played by. Um, Brad Pitt, if it was played by somebody with like, who was a little less charming, like just like a Justin Thoreau type or something like that, mm-hmm. what kind of movie would it be? Um, in the, in the novel, he's, he, you know, he's a little more sociopath and a little less charming. Um, and I think in the movie, he's a little more charming and it feels like all of this was done to make it more enjoyable as a movie. And, yeah. you know, I I've expressed some concerns about that here on this podcast, but it doesn't stop it, it doesn't take away the pleasure of it being so enjoyable. And, you know, for people like you and me who are not going to be inspired to go no. cause trouble, this is one of the most enjoyable movies. And Brad Pitt's performance, which is one of the most charismatic, I'm going to just, I'm going to plant myself here and own this movie and this role. Yeah. One of the best examples of that I've seen. Very true. And I love the juxtaposition of them. Uh, I remember an interview where Norton talked about as the film went on or shooting went on, I should say, he like stopped eating or taking care of himself, whereas uh, they sent Pitt to go tanning and bulk (laughs) up. So he became even more emaciated and Pitt looked better and better as the film went on just to kind of really drive that wedge home. But, yeah, they yeah. had to do that because yep. what, a year before Ed Norton was in American History X looking a lot like, you know, like a Brad Durden. Pitt type character yeah. would would look. So he's a pretty good looking guy in his own right. So I can see mm-hmm. why they had to draw a bigger contrast between the two of them. Yeah. And what you're saying to you about um, the emasculation, like another uh, quote from Fincher uh, talking about the point of the movie, he said, we're designed to be hunters we're in a society of shopping. There's nothing to kill anymore. There's nothing to fight, nothing to overcome, nothing to explore. And that societal emasculation, this every man, quote unquote, the narrator is created. And that's absolutely the point of the film. It also seems like we are describing people that go out and conduct mass shootings here when we're talking about these characters. And it it is very scary to think about with uh, Fight Club but you wish people did pay a little closer attention to the fact that these were men who were angsty. They couldn't figure out how to motivate themselves or what they needed in life. And they just went and looked for chaos to define them. And in a weird way, that's kind of its own consumerism, its mm-hmm. own emptiness. And I think I wish that people would talk about film a little bit more than they do um, what you were talking about depiction doesn't equal endorsement. And yeah, this is, it, it walks a fine balance. It's kind of like clockwork orange for me where it's like, should they look like they're having this much fun doing this kind of stuff? It's, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, okay. So two things about that, um, regarding the shootings, uh, I, I, I've been rereading, uh, Don DeLillo's white noise recently and, I came across this paragraph uh, that in which the character starts carrying a gun for the first time. And I just want to read it quickly. Um, He says the gun created a second reality for me to inhabit. The air was bright swirling around my head, nameless feelings pressed thrillingly on my chest. 
It was a reality I could control, secretly dominate. How stupid all these people were coming into my office unarmed. And I thought that really put a, uh, put a fine point on the agency people get from carrying guns. Yeah. And I think, I, I think it does the same. It speaks to what's going on in Fight Club as well, right? This guy literally creates a second reality mm-hmm. that he can control, that he can, that he can dominate in. And it makes everyone else look like idiots to him in comparison. So I, th- I think that's a terrific point to connect um, the agency people feel from carrying a gun to the agency, you know, the narrator feels by creating this second, uh, this second person, this avatar. Yeah, very true. And it's interesting when you're watching it, uh, especially after you've seen it a few times, you're like picking up on things like Paper Street, which for those listening that are aware is something that's written in maps when they are or housing development maps, when they're planning, like this might be a street, but we're not sure. They just, it's called Paper Street. And so it's like something that doesn't exist and might not exist. And there are oh, wow. so many clues throughout the film, like when he beats himself up in the office uh, to you know, prevent himself from being fired or th- the confrontation with his boss and his line about, for some reason, I was picturing my first fight with Tyler and it's him fighting himself. So it is filled with these obvious like clues that something is not right with this narrator. He also does not have a name, of course. Reading about the making of the film and all the different revisions that the script underwent, I mean, they even consulted people like Cameron Crowe, like really great writers mm-hmm. for advice on, you know, should we make uh, the Brad Pitt character more charismatic? Cameron Crowe actually advised make him more ambiguous. And mm-hmm. I think that was especially helpful, but they also made our narrator more ambiguous. He speaks in a monotone. So that way the contrast between the two men is super striking, but also because he's kind of a blank slate, the narrator, I think if you watch it and you're of that wrong state of mind, you might see yourself, I think a little too much as that. And that's, I think where the danger might be. I'm not sure. I think that's a good point. And um, I also think it's fascinating. I would be curious to know what it's like watching it as a woman, because I think it's probably a bit different than watching it as a man. One thing it took me a long time to kind of really hone in on is what it must be like for Marla in this situation. Yes. Um, really like having this guy who literally is behaving like he has multiple personality. He's love. He's he's kind to her one moment. He's an asshole the next. And kind of watching some of those scenes with the narrator play out um, where the guy, you know, it's a cliche. The guy turns into a prick in the morning and doesn't want her around. Yeah. Um, but that's not clear. Like on for me, definitely not on the first viewing, but probably for a few view- viewings, because I was so locked into these male characters, I really hadn't even given her much thought. But I bet there's a whole other, uh, more richness to it when you really consider, you know, what she's going through in the movie. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky portrayal and a complicated character because she's also a sociopath. I mean, you know, the horrible things we see her do early on. So she is not, I mean, she tries to take her own life. This is not a paragon of mental health either. So you could Mm -hmm. see maybe why she was taken in by this persona 
But yeah, as the film goes on, I don't know if it's surviving her suicide attempt or what happens. She seems to be, I mean, by comparison anyway, she gets more normal seeming as the film goes on. And the one who started out and you assume is slightly normal, the corporate guy who uh, is played by Norton becomes just incredibly psychotic by the end so yeah it's, it's well it's, it's because she's not part of that group right yeah. i mean she's not a man she's not welcome in that group and <laughs> and i think that's the message of the film right is that it's it's the group that pushes people towards doing things that they wouldn't do otherwise and that's that the anti-fascism message that does still come through i think yeah there's definitely an issue of group think and i also just think when you don't have any kind of purpose in your life, seeking any purpose, even destruction or the numbness you get from pain, which is kind of like a narcotization of, you know, cave people banging their heads against the wall, basically. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So I know when it came to these films, you also mentioned the matrix and being John Malkovich. Are there any others that you wanted to, just touch on that possibly deal with um, your theory on the internet avatars or what was going on at the time in filmmaking or Gen X that you find particularly fascinating? Those are, those are the big ones, but um, I, I will say this isn't about film necessarily. You know, I think those movies, zero effect is a, is a mystery. Clearly. Yes. And those other movies are not exactly mysteries, but they have they have elements of like a twist ending is a is a is an element of a mystery. And there's something so satisfying about these films. And you mentioned the clues in Fight Club. Mm-hmm. I am terrible at guessing what's going to happen in a movie, even if it's super obvious. It just never occurs to me to like watch a movie that way. Um, oh, gotcha. trying to guess what happens. Um, and for that reason, I've always loved mysteries and twist yeah. endings because I'm always flabbergasted by them every single time. And I remember as a kid reading um, Encyclopedia Brown books. Do you remember those? Oh, yes, of course. And those, these, it's about a kid detective and they were so obvious. It would be like he's investigating a case and he finds a, a receipt for a red sweater at the scene of the crime. And then later he's interviewing a guy and he'll be like, uh, he was tall and wore a red sweater. And I would never pick up that, pick up on that as a kid. And I would always mm-hmm. be blown away. And I get, I think kids like mysteries like Hardy boys and Nancy drew and stuff, because we get to see a kid navigating the adult world and outsmarting adults. And I still feel that way when I watch a mystery uh, today Mm-hmm. Or when I watch a movie with a twist ending, I love, I love being outsmarted. I love being in the hands of somebody who knows how to navigate a story. And to me, there's no more fundamental example of that than than movies like these, with with clues that you could be picking up if you were paying attention, but they mm-hmm. know how to make you not pay attention. I just, I love being manipulated like that, and these movies do it the best. Yeah. And there's so much uh, with guilt and culpability in these movies Mm -hmm. that I find fascinating. You can watch them just purely uh, as a mystery and love those twist endings. But 
yeah, there's just something interesting when you're lost in the narrative of the narrator in Fight Club and then just are thrown completely for a loop. I still remember how shocked I was at the end of the movie the first time I saw it. Absolutely. And listening to you talk about this pleasure and this fascination, it reminded me of, again, I mentioned it earlier, but this whole little five, six, seven year era right into the early zeros with Mulholland Drive just like Fight Club we're dealing with a woman who has guilt and culpability over something she's done and is imagining or going through something um, as, as a dream or a hallucination or thinking about it and then going back to Usual Suspects which is one of my favorites it deals with, I mean, I remember how shocked I was on that one too, just like Mulholland Drive, just like Fight Club, all of these. I loved the way it played with stereotypes of the disabled because mm-hmm. I'm disabled. And so I loved that it was this man playing on everyone's stereotypes about disability. Like, of course, it couldn't be the disabled guy, that kind of thing. And then at the end, you're like, of course, he just played on all these expectations and used the strong man or the Gabriel Byrne character as a mm-hmm. shadow. And we see that maybe that's his avatar and yeah. might have something there. Yeah. That's a, that's a great call about usual suspects. I mean, he has an avatar and in, in a way the whole movie is an avatar, right? And it he's is making up yeah, this he's making it up. world. Yeah. Yeah. His, it's an entire paper street. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this was so much fun. Do you have any other films you want to give a shout out to or any observations that we didn't touch on? I'll just tell people they should check out The Kid Detective because, you know, as I said, it's not it's not like a mind blowing film. It's not going to be your favorite movie of the year, but it's a really solid mystery detective story. It's got some originality to it. It's got a great performance by Adam Brody in it. It makes me want to see him in more lead roles. And it's just it's a it's a smart little private eye movie. And if those kinds of movies scratch scratch your itch, then this one definitely will. Definitely. I can't wait to check that out. And you're so right. Adam Brody is great. He's got such a deafness with uh, language and he's just fun to watch. So can't wait. Yeah, Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Noah. I really appreciated this. You're welcome back anytime. (laughs) This was a blast. Next time I'm going to sing some Daryl Zero songs for us. So I hope the audience is ready for that. All right. We will be. You bet. (laughs) I'll have to learn to play guitar or something. No, I'm just kidding. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.